Thanks, Brian, for a uh, characteristically generous introduction. Uh, as Brian has mentioned, uh, the two of us are no strangers to doing uh, book launches in this, uh, in this wonderful room, uh, and it's uh, a great pleasure uh, to be launching uh, this important volume. Uh, can I, of course, acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners of the lands in which we meet today, uh, to thank the ANU Centre on China and the World for inviting me to speak, uh, to acknowledge, of course, Vice-Chancellor Brian Schmidt, Jane Golly, Linda Javan, uh, Natalie Cole, Graham Smith and Wen Mizen. In the early years of this century, the literary critic James Woods was trying to give a new name to a fiction genre that he recognised in the minutely observed sprawling surveys of contemporary society. He called it hysterical realism because it had an edge of paranoia, seeing connections with our only incidents, plotting causes and intentions and fascinatingly random human activity. And these doorstop novels would take diverse threads of history, politics and popular culture and weave them together into intricate patterns. Hysterical because the patterns emerge as the vision of a single organising intelligence. One mind over full. But take away the angst and the overburdened pessimism of that single viewpoint, and you get a different sort of tapestry. A broadly ranging, yet expertly detailed depiction of a contemporary culture. And it's that kind of a collective project that arrives each year in the form of the China Story Yearbook. An almanac, an intricate mural of essays that is simply fascinating across its many dimensions. Troubling at times, impressive, inspiring, timely and precious. So precious, in fact, that when we launched the yearbook a couple of years ago at Parliament House, one of my parliamentary colleagues came to me bleary-eyed the following day, complaining that she didn't get enough sleep, but she couldn't put the China yearbook down. In this year's volume, we see grey rhinos stalking ominously in the background of stable markets and a spike in the market for donkey hides. Want no more? Read the yearbook. <laughs> we learn how censors are playing whack-a-mole with unruly bloggers who seek to overturn official doctrine by posting official irreverent satire and social criticism. We see the braggadocio of rampant prosperity, government-sanctioned red rappers broadcasting aggressive nationalism, juxtaposed with the protest apathy of those who see themselves uncoupled from the momentum of moderately prosperous modern China. Why can't I just waste time by the river? Asked the motto of one prevailing slacker counterculture. We see all the manifestations of the middle classes rise and rise. The individualism of aspiration, consumption, angst. The industries and services that are catering to the drives of free marketed, set loose by expanding disposable incomes. We take a trip to the Fang village a robber town pursuing prosperity at the remote margins of centralised state power, emblematic of local fiefdoms whose roving populations harvest illegal wealth from other regions to sustain the economy of their home village. It feels never-ending. Shapes and patterns of entrepreneurial, organisational, aspirational humanity. And all concretely particular. It reaffirms what a resource this annual volume is for anyone trying to keep up with China from afar. 
or to keep up with the rapid evolution of this vast and vastly significant regional neighbour. The latest volume surveys Xi Jinping's fifth year as leader of the party and state and draws on the prevailing vision President Xi set out in 2017 of a moderately prosperous society with no Chinese individual left behind. It reflects a year in which broad and shared prosperity has become a state-endorsed marker of China's ascendancy. Make China great again, if you like. China's brand new charity law has encouraged and formalised a culture of philanthropy. The law provides a framework for transparency and compliance, but also a way for the government to focus private giving on issues that government has prioritised. To move that sits alongside the gloriously organic spread of tap-and-go payments to street beggars, an unruly adaptation and a sign of the sheer ubiquity of smartphones. Superstars and goddesses are no longer acceptable terms of reference for celebrities, but the relaxation of other cultural constraints has meant more private jet planes for the super-rich and a boom in the field of psychotherapy. Prosperity is enabling but also disorienting creates its own rules, but also its own maladies. And it creates new friction points wherever the natural energies that are fueling China's growth crash against the imperatives of the party. As space for burials, uh, burials becomes scarce, property speculators are cornering key plots and sought after cemeteries. The party urges frugality, or better yet, cremation. But the parallel valorisation of prosperity has encouraged conspicuous consumption. As the yearbook puts it, death has become big business. Just one more example of how modern China's redefining its virtues. And it's worth noting at this point how important the growth of China's prosperity has been for Australia. China has benefited from a period of great stability and the region has benefited from the long period of peace. As I noted in Choosing Openness, China's economic development has been not only to the benefit of China and hundreds of millions of people who have been lifted out of poverty, but also to the benefit of Australia too. And we should acknowledge that China's prosperity is a cause of anxiety for some, who wonder what the nation might ultimately do with its growing resources, its growing strength. Recent events have highlighted the readjustments that are necessary in regional understandings. With the United States and China on the brink of a trade war, as we meet tonight, it's worth recalling the dire warnings of Deloitte's 2017 report, which suggested that a sharp growth slowdown in China could cost half a million jobs in Australia. The Australian economy is less diversified than either the United States or China. And we're more trade dependent than either of those economies. So it stands to reason we've got more to lose than they do from a sharp slowdown in trade. The Smoot-Hawley tariffs of the 1930s didn't cause the Great Depression, but they did slow the recovery. And by contrast, the story of Australia in the 1970s, 1980s and 1990s was a nation that recognised the value of unilateral tariff reductions, that it's worth taking the rocks out of your own harbours, regardless of what your trading partners do about the rocks in their harbours. As Paul Samuelson once noted, comparative advantage is one of the best examples in the social sciences of a proposition that is true and not trivial. 
and it's never been impo more important than today for Australia to remind our trading partners of the value of comparative advantage, the mutual gains from trade. Uh, because if a trade war starts, it won't be someone else's war. It'll be ours too. You can sit on the sidelines of a shooting war, but in, inter in an interconnected world, we all suffer when the trade walls start to go up. As Shadow Trade Minister Jason Clare puts it, if this escalates from tit-for-tat tariff increases into a genuine trade war, then both countries will suffer. But more than that, the whole world will suffer. As Australia negotiates our path around and through these readjustments, the insights from the China Story Yearbook will be invaluable. It can't be overlooked that the past year has been a bad one for human rights and human rights activists in China. 2017 was the year Nobel laureate Lu Xiaobo died in custody. It was a year that saw the tightening of restrictions on historical research, bans on public discussions of party rule, and the increasing efficiency of efforts to stamp out online satire and criticism. To be a good neighbour to China, we need to see all these things with clear eyes. It's this kind of pragmatic principle, this sort of sober realism that guides Labor's policy in the region. You'll have heard it before from my colleagues Penny Wong, Chris Bowen, Jason Clare. Asian economies are changing and Australia isn't keeping up. So what does the story of prosperity in modern China look like? Well, if current trends continue, in a decade or so, China will overtake the United States and claim the number one spot as the world's largest economy. As of 2017, China has more billionaires than America. Their wealth is growing faster than their economy overall. The US Congress has no billionaires. China's National, Pe National People's Congress has 100 billionaires. Venture capital is flowing freely to tech-savvy entrepreneurs who are tailoring their products to tap into the needs of, middle, of the mobile-saturated middle classes. Global, global online platforms are disrupting traditional retail and service markets. And in China, that disruption has taken place faster and on a bigger scale. In the past year, Alibaba eclipsed Amazon as the world's biggest e-commerce company. Didi overtook Uber in market valuation. And rapid growth has not only benefited companies and individuals at the top end of China's income spectrum. In the five years since President Xi rose to power, a further 60 million Chinese people rose from poverty. Though stark income disparities remain between city and country, coastal and inland areas, men and women, this statistic still represents an outstanding achievement. As Penny Wong put it in Labor's Future Asia policy, Australia has much to learn from China. If we want to keep up, we need to change our thinking. It doesn't involve tinkering or gradualism, but a whole-of-government approach to deepen, broaden and consolidate our engagement with China. If we want to keep up our record of economic growth, if we still want our place in the G20 in decades to come, it's critically important we improve our trade, investment, education, security and cultural links with China. How do we do that? Well, we take an interest, a broad interest, an interest in the human dynamics, the shared passion, the areas of minor and, frankly, major social friction. Or as Penny Wong puts it, we engage with China as it is, not as some might perceive it or as China might represent itself. We put our money where our mouth is with Future Asia commitments to arrange internships 
for Australian professionals to gain experience in the Chinese market, making Australia Week in China an annual event, establishing a specialised team to help Australian businesses tackle the non-tariff barriers in Asian markets. And part of the way we consolidate our relationship with China is by getting to know China better. It'll help us to understand ourselves better too, because how we respond to China and the relationship we form will define our identity for decades to come. Where to from here is always a good question to close with. I'm not sure I've got as good an answer as the panellists, but I will end up with a juxtaposition from the China story. In October last year, the 19th Communist Party Congress amended the party constitution to add Xi Jinping thought for the new era of socialism with Chinese characteristics as the guiding ideology for the new era. This makes President Xi the first leader since Mao Zedong to have an official ideology named after him. A matter of weeks ago, the Party Congress voted to remove the limit on presidential terms. Hold that in your mind while you consider this. China has 730 million internet users. The daily news aggregation site, Chuchao Daily Headline, is using artificial intelligence and machine learning to track a user's clicks and curate a news feed to suit. Their powerful algorithms generate satisfying results for their users, but the sites earn the ire of official newspaper and the state by serving up clickbait headlines, uncivilised content and eye-catching news. State-approved information and sanctioned news is none of these things. While users appreciated the, how the algorithm spared them from political messaging, the party wasn't so impressed. Chutao's artificial intelligence would even learn from users and amplify their unflattering attitudes towards the party. How will the state moderate this expression of the middle class's group mind? Does it need to? With questions like that, I'm already looking forward to next year's China Story Yearbook. Thank you very much.